Well, good morning, 11 o'clock. How is everyone today? Good, good, good. Hey, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to take it out and turn to Acts chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, our app, the Experience Community app, should have all of the notes today and everything that we're going to say on there. Um, for those of you who have not met yet, my name is Josh Brooker. I pastor the campus in um, the greater metropolitan Woodbury area. So I come, I come to you today from uh, Wood Vegas, Tennessee, and I am really, really happy to be here today. Um, for those of you who don't know, maybe you just moved here, Woodbury is like a, a little map dot, but man, God's doing big things in a small place. Um, just like how Jesus came from a small town, God still works in small towns, right? So small towns may be small in size, but they're not small in importance to God. So um, we're a small town, but God's doing big things in a small town, amen? And so I'm really happy to be here. You can clap for that. I think it's a cool place to live. Um, I served as the executive pastor here for a number of years, and so it is great to be back. Um, it's funny, people have been coming up to me all weekend, and, wow, you're, oh, like, I'm, I'm not dead, like, I just, I'm, like, 20 miles to the east of you, so, anyway. Um, some of you don't know this, but, man, we have been tracking right along with you guys, so when you guys have been in the book of Acts, we've been in the book of Acts as well, and so we have been following along in your study, just like you guys have been doing, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today, we are in Acts 27, and if you've not been with us, we've been following this guy named the Apostle Paul. The narrative of the book of Acts has shifted towards him, kind of as this central character, and we've been following him, and what we're going to see today is Paul is on a journey to Rome. We'll see why here in a little bit. And this specific account that's recorded in chapter 27 talks about a storm that Paul endures, and Paul is actually on a boat, and so his boat is ripped apart, and it's really, really bad. And we have to ask ourselves, with everything in our Bible, why is it in our Bible? Why was this recorded? What does this have to do what is this with you? What does this have to do with me? And so I, I think what we're going to talk about today, and what we're going to see today, is that it is common for all of us at times to feel helpless and to feel hopeless in the storms of life. How many of you know that just because you come after Jesus and follow Jesus, that does not mean that we are exempt from hardship, pain, and difficulty? The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. Man, every one of us in this room, whether we don't want anything to do with Jesus or whether we are a follower of Jesus, we're going to have to endure some sort of storm in our lives. If it hasn't come for you yet, don't worry, it, it will come eventually. But what we see that is, if we find our help, if we find our hope, and if we find our foundation in Christ, no matter the storm that comes against us, no matter how big it is, no matter how strong it is, we're going to be okay. So I hope this message today is a message of encouragement to you. I hope it's a message that reminds us where our hope is found, and then that's not in us, that's in him. Amen? So if you've got a Bible, Acts 27. But before we do that, um, all the dads in the house, if you are sitting next to your dad or maybe um, that person who's a dad to your kids or maybe just a guy that's a dad that you think is really, really awesome, um, all the dads, where are you at? Raise your hand so we can see them. Give a hand up for all the dads. Okay, here's what we're going to do. If one of those guys is sitting next to you, as we pray today, will you put a hand on their shoulder? There you go. Put it, don't, don't like slap them on the forehead or anything crazy like that. Just put a hand on the shoulder, <laughs> nice and Christian-like, right? Here's what we're going to do. Um, there is a critical absence of godly masculinity in our culture, is there not? When we say that the word masculinity, immediately in our culture, that sets off triggers where people think of toxic masculinity, and it doesn't have to be toxic. It can be godly. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to pray for, encourage, support, and honor the men in this room that are doing everything they can to come after Jesus and be a godly man. Amen? Amen. So let's pray for them this morning for that end. Father God, we thank you for these men. We thank you for these dads. We thank you that of any way that you chose to reveal yourself to us in your word, you chose the name Father. We thank you that you are a father to the fatherless. For some of us, this holiday is probably painful because we don't have a dad in our life right now or we didn't have a great example of a dad, but we thank you, God, that you're the perfect father. And so we thank you for those of us in the room this morning that may have not had a good father figure that, Lord, we can look to you as the perfect father. And, Lord, we lift up the dads in the room this morning. We know they're not perfect. We know that they desperately need your grace. And so, Lord, this morning we honor them And we pray, God, that you would fill them up with your Holy Spirit, that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them. God, that you would point their eyes towards you as the perfect father so, God, they can follow that example. And today, as their brothers, as their sisters, as their spouses, as their kids, we just honor them this morning. And we pray in the name of Jesus for a blessing to be on each and every one of them this morning. In Jesus' name. We thank you, Father, for this passage of scripture we're going to study today. We lift up every church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee that's doing what we're doing this morning. We pray that you would bless those churches, you would grow those churches, and you'd unite your church together under one name, the name of Jesus. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 1. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 12. Here we go. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adrimidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. Um, by the way, if you're Greek, I probably just butchered every one of those cities, so I'm really sorry. I love your baklava. Let's keep going. <laughs> and your gyros. Your gyros are fantastic. All right. <laughs> It's Father's Day, dad jokes. All right. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Let's let's get a bit of background as to what's going on in this passage. So at this point in Paul's life, at this point in his ministry, he's been in custody for two and a half years. That's a long time to be in custody, wondering and waiting what's actually going to happen to you. He was originally arrested in Jerusalem. 
And the charge that he was arrested under was that he was attempting to defile the temple. Now, this was kind of a perfectly vague charge. They couldn't really prove it, but essentially this charge against him was that because he was traveling with a Gentile, that he intended to bring a Gentile into the inner court of the temple, which was illegal for a Jew to do. And so they charged him and arrested him and said, this is what you were going to do, even they couldn't really prove it. And so he'd been transferred to a place called Caesarea. And he was under the care of a guy named Felix, the governor. Felix kept him for two years, hoping that Paul would somehow pay a bribe. And so if he paid a bribe, he would get off scot-free. But then Felix was relieved of his duty by a guy named Festus. Not Festus from Gunsmoke, another Festus. So you can Google Gunsmoke if you don't know what that is. So Festus, the governor. And then another guy named Herod Agrippa, who was kind of a, a puppet king of Judea. And so Paul kind of gets this idea in his head, like, man, these people don't really care about me. They don't really care about the trial. It's just politics. And so he pulls out all the stops and he says, I appeal to Caesar. Now for us, that may not mean much, but in that day and age, if you were a Roman citizen, you could make an appeal to Caesar and bring your case before the highest and most powerful court in all of the empire. And that was the court of Caesar in Rome. And so this is where Paul finds himself in the first part of chapter 27. He's being transferred to Rome through a sea voyage. Verse 1 tells us that Paul was with a couple of other prisoners, and they were handed over to a centurion named Julius so they could get transferred to Rome. See, sailing in the ancient world was a lot different than like going on a cruise today. You're not hanging out on the solarium deck drinking a pina colada, right? It, it is very dangerous. It was time-consuming. It was very uncomfortable. And if you were a prisoner sailing in the ancient world, it was even more different. One of the major differences is that the ship probably moved in daily legs from one coastal port to another. As we read these first 12 verses, man, there's a lot of different names of cities and locations and harbors mentioned, and our eyes kind of glaze over, and like, I don't even know where that is. I can't even pronounce that, right? Uh, this was because at that time, um, ships would have had to make their travel arrangements based on the wind and the weather. So it would have been really difficult to really say, I'm going to go from point A to point B. You know, it was normally you would go from this point to that point, then back up, then back down, depending on how the wind was and the weather was. Paul seems to have had a lot of freedom as a high-profile political prisoner. Verse 3 tells us that he would come to a port, and Julius would say, hey, go see your friends, go see the Christians in this city, and join back up with us. And so God was giving Paul favor with this centurion. And Luke, the writer of this account, who was actually there, because he says things like, we did this, and this is where we were, tells us that eventually this party of prisoners came to a place called Alexandria, and they switched ships there, and they encountered bad weather. If you're on a cruise now, and you encounter bad weather, most of the time it's just kind of inconvenient or uncomfortable. Oh man, it's raining, let's go down and watch a movie downstairs and eat at the midnight buffet. That's not how it was then. It was so dangerous, it would include like you losing your life. Um, he mentions that it was even after the fast. What's that about? Well, the fast that was mentioned was Yom Kippur. That was the Jewish Day of Atonement, indicating that this was happening in September. How many of you have ever traveled to Florida during hurricane season? Okay, a couple of you. As Tennesseans, we typically think that anytime you go down to Florida, it's perfect weather. Newsflash, it's not always perfect weather. If you go down in hurricane season, sometimes it's bad. And so what he's saying is, it was after the fast, this was not a good time to travel in the Mediterranean Sea. Traveling in this particular part of the Mediterranean Sea was dangerous in September. And historians even tell us that in the middle of November, it was considered impossible, that you would not go out to sea at all until after the winter was over. 
And so Paul, at this point in his life, man, he's traveled everywhere. He's traveled all around the world, taking the gospel all across the Mediterranean. So he um, speaks up and tells them um, not to continue. I love like how our Bible makes him sound really, um, <clears throat> excuse me, sirs, I perceive that if we keep going, we're all going to die, right? I would have been like, stop! But Paul's very polite, right? If we keep going, we're going to die. Not, not surprisingly, they don't really listen to him. They listen to the captain. They listen to the guy that owns the boat. But they probably should have listened to him because Paul had been here before. This was not his first rodeo. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11 tells us he's been shipwrecked three times, which I would not want to get on a boat with Paul at this point in his life, right? So he must have felt like his opinion had some merit. I've seen this before. This does not end well. I've traveled to this part of the world before. We don't need to keep going. But in spite of his warnings, this group pressed on through the bad weather for a place called Phoenix, which was 40 miles to the west, so they could spend the winter there. I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. Paul sees that, man, something bad is on the horizon. I did what I could to warn them about it, but ultimately they didn't listen to me, and I have no power to try to stop this. I have no power to try to fix this. What Paul is encountering most likely is a profound sense of helplessness. Well, let me ask you something this morning. Have you ever been in a bad situation or seen a bad situation unfolding right before you that you're completely powerless to do anything about? Maybe it's that family member, that's that friend, and they're involved in a lifestyle that you know is not sustainable and that is self-destructive. And man, you've done everything you could to warn them and to speak out against it. And yet, in spite of your warnings, they keep going down the path that they want to go down. Maybe with your business, you've been in a place where you've seen this before and you know it's bad and you do everything you can to say something and do something. And yet people say, well, that's great. Thank you for that. We're going to keep going this way. Maybe it's your marriage. Man, you've done everything you can to save this marriage. You've done everything. You've read every book you can get a hold of. You've done all these things. But in spite of that, it seems like your partner's not willing to do anything and you feel completely helpless. Helplessness is a very real phenomena that we all find ourselves experiencing at one point or another. The reality is we're actually in control of a lot less than we think we are. We live in a culture that is obsessed with self-help, comfort, control, convenience. We tell ourselves things like, if I just get my ducks all in a row, then nothing bad will ever happen to me because I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm the captain of my own fate. If something is going to happen to me, it's going to be not on my watch. I'm going to be the one that takes life by the horns and I'll just make it happen. But the reality is, man, you're, you're in control of a lot less than you think you are. As a minister, I've done a lot of weddings for a lot of brides over the years and encountered several brides that have been dreaming of that wedding day since they were like, I don't know, six months old. <laughs> and so get, they get to that day and they've done all this planning, they've done all this prep work, they've thought everything's going to be this way and this way and this way, and man, if you fart at the wrong time, you're out of the wedding, right? And it's just, <laughs> everything's going to be great. And listen, if you've ever been at a wedding or been to a wedding or especially officiated a wedding, you understand there's a lot that you can't control, man. You're not going to control your brother-in-law locking his knees and passing out or your flower girl losing as she comes down the aisle or if you're doing an outdoor wedding, man, there's even more that you can't control. Truth is, you are not as in control as you think you are of anything. You never have been, you never will be, and you're not now. And for some of us, this can breed this kind of 
anxiety and worry and this neurotic kind of obsession with what could go wrong, what could go wrong, what could go wrong. But for us as people of faith, we know that God is never shocked. God is never surprised. And God is never alarmed by anything that happens to us. And he is always completely in control. Man, you're going to encounter things in your life that are far bigger than you are, that you have no control over, but God never encounters anything that he is not in control over. God never shows up when something bad happens and goes, oh, yeah, 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 I did not see that coming, right? <laughs> for some of us, again, this could lead us to a place of worry and doubt and confusion, but for others, I think it should lead us to a place of resting in the sovereignty and the goodness and control of God. Not only is he completely in control, he's completely good, and he loves you. Look what James wrote in James 4. He says this, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, we'll carry business on, and we'll make money. Well, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this and do that. I don't think what he's saying is that we, you know, Jesus juke everybody and you want to go to lunch after church? Well, if it's God's will. Like, I don't think that's what he means by that. I think what he means by that is we live our lives with a sense of understanding God is the one in control, not me. I'm living open-handed. What God wants to put into my hands, he can put into my hands. What God wants to take out of my hands, he can take out of my hands. And the reality is he's God, not me. And I believe this is a pathway to peace. And I believe this is why Paul has peace as he encounters this storm. Let's look at this next part. You still with me? Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the citrus, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Which, by the way, Paul, that's not very helpful, man. I think they get the point, right? You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Thanks, Paul. Yet, now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So at first, it seems like this plan seemed to be working fine. They enjoyed a gentle wind along the coast of Crete. But then it says that a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster hit them from over the top of the island and completely 
took over the ship. What is a northeaster? Well, different places called storm winds different things. In some places we call it, you know, the Gulf Stream or El Nino. For those of you who don't, habla Espanol, El Nino is Spanish for the Nino. And apparently this was a very common name that a lot of people understood for a storm wind in the Mediterranean. I don't know if you've ever seen a hurricane before. I don't know if you've ever seen water in a hurricane before. It's scary. It's dangerous. So this crew started doing everything they could to save the ship, but more than that, they're trying to save their lives because they understand, man, it's really, really, really bad. And in spite of their efforts, this violent wind kept pushing them further and further in a direction that they did not want to go. Let me ask you this. Have you ever encountered something in your life bigger than you that pushes you in a direction that you don't want to go? Maybe it's that marital issue that you, you, that's bigger than you, man. You don't know how to fix it and it keeps pushing you in a place and you're ending up in a place and you're like, man, I don't know how I got here, but I don't like it. Maybe it's that diagnosis. Maybe it's that issue in your family or in your workplace and you're in a place and you're, you're thinking, I don't know how I got here, but I don't like it and I wish it would change. But verse 20 gives us a picture of just how bad things got. As the crew decides, man, there's no point in fighting. There's no point in hoping. We're just gonna die out here and that's the way going to be. Look at verse 20. I have it up on the screen. When, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Ever walked through a season in your life where you felt like you hadn't seen the sun in a long time? Hadn't seen the stars in a long time? You, you've just resigned to yourself that nothing's going to change, nothing's going to get better. Not only are you helpless, you're hopeless. You're experiencing real, genuine despair. Real despair is when we move from feeling helpless to feeling hopeless. It's when we have no expectation of anything ever getting better, anything ever changing. I'm just going to die out here. This is the way it's always going to be. This is the way it's always going to be with my health. It's always going to be this way with my family. Always going to be this way in my marriage. It's just never going to get better. So why even try? I don't even want to live. That's where these guys are at. In the midst of this despair, in the midst of this hopelessness, Paul shows up on the deck. And even though he starts with an I told you so, which I just love that that's included in the Bible because we know that Paul is kind of like, you know, human like the rest of us. I mean, because I probably would have said that too, right? <laughs> I told you so, right? Eventually, he starts assuring these guys that God has spoken to him that they wouldn't die. God had sent him an angel to assure him that only would he not die, he would stand before Caesar and this ship would run aground on an island. But we already know from reading the book of Acts that in chapter 23, God had made him a promise before he encountered the storm that he was going to stand before Caesar. So when he goes into the storm, he already has a knowledge of this is not how I die. God's going to get me through this. Not only that, God's promise of protection had also been extended to everyone in the ship. And so Paul's message of hope in God was not just for him, it was for other people as well. You need to know that people in our world are looking for anyone that has confidence and hope in something bigger than themselves. We live in a very hopeless world where storms come and go for all of us. And there's a lot of people out there that are looking for anything to hold on to. And when you as a believer in Jesus and a follower of the one true God can have hope and confidence in your God and his power to deliver, that is contagious and that brings hope to other people. So Paul 
tells them these things, but here's what I don't want you to miss. Man, it is not unusual for us as believers, even people who have been saved by Jesus or following him, it's not unusual for us to feel helpless from time to time. I'll go a step further than that, man. It's not unusual for that helplessness to cause us to even feel hopeless. Christians still at times get depressed. Christians at times still feel real despair. Christians at times still wonder, is this ever going to get better? Is this ever going to change? But we have to remind ourselves that just because we feel something in a moment, that does not make it true. We live in a culture, man, that places such a high premium and such a high value on personal feeling and experience. And such a low premium and such a low value on rational fact. And so what happens is we say to ourselves, if I feel this, it must be true. This is how I feel, therefore it must be right, it must be true. And so we follow our hearts and we follow our hearts and we follow our hearts and we follow our hearts right into an affair. We follow our hearts right into a divorce. We follow our hearts right into selfishness. And the reality is, our emotions make terrible masters. Because man, listen, I, I wake up sometimes, and my life is far from perfect, but I'll wake up sometimes and the sun is shining and the birds are singing and my song came on the radio and I made my coffee really strong that morning. And so I'm, I mean, I'm just in a good mood. And it's awesome. I'm driving down the road and I thank God for it. I'm like, oh, I'm in really good mood today. And then I wake up the exact next day and nothing has really changed in my life and yet I feel awful. Is it just me? Let's be real. Like, man, our emotions do this sometimes. Why? Because we're made from dust. Like, we're not God. God's mood never changes. God's mind never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, but not me. Not me. If I find my hope in how I feel in a moment, I will always be led towards disaster. The reality is, regardless of how we feel, if we're in Christ, no situation we face is ever hopeless. And just like Paul, we have promises from God that he'll be our hope in times of trouble. You may say, Josh, okay, come on. Never had an angel like materialize in my bedroom and say, you're going to be okay. I mean, what kind of promises did God give me? Well, you actually have something that um, Paul didn't have the luxury of having at that point. You have the promises of God in his word. Let me just show you two. <laughs> There's hundreds, maybe even thousands. Let me just show you two. Here, here's one, Deuteronomy 31.8. It says, the Lord himself goes before you. Just stop and think about that for a second. What is it in your future you are most nervous about? Two weeks from now, what is that unknown that you're uncertain about? And you go, man, I don't, I don't know how it's going to work out. Can we think about that for a second? The Lord himself goes before you. He already knows. Not only that, he will be with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. What about this one? John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What are we most afraid about in our culture today? Death. Death. Death is unavoidable for every one of us in this room. The only thing everyone from 200 years ago has in common is they're all dead. Unless Jesus returns before we all die, the only thing we all have in common is someday we will all die too. 
And most people on this earth are terrified by that. They try to look younger and younger and try to prolong that and prolong that and prolong that. And the reality is it's coming for you. It's coming for me. But here's what Jesus said. If you believe in me, when you go through this thing called death, it's actually not death. It's an upgrade. And he looks at these people and says, do you believe that? So I'm looking at you this morning and asking, do you believe that? Or is this just some cute cliche that we get at Hobby Lobby and put up in our laundry room so Nana thinks we're good people, right? <laughs> Let's be honest, man. We could get so familiar with this stuff that it loses any meaning at all for our lives. But real faith is us coming and saying, this is true, and I believe it, and I'm banking my life on it. But the problem is, sometimes the wind and the waves are louder in our minds than these promises that we're going to be okay. Sometimes in the midst of a storm, these things seem cliche and these things seem naive. But that's why it's crucial for us to read and meditate on God's word every single day and spend time in God's presence through prayer. To have us speak truth to ourselves each and every day. We have to get in this habit of preaching truth to ourselves every single day. Because not only do we forget it, not only do we not listen because the wind and the waves are so loud, but we have an enemy that loves to tell us lies. When it feels hopeless, you have an enemy that will whisper to you, it is hopeless, even though it's not. Why does he say that? Because he's a liar. But we have the truth of God to remind us that we're going to be okay. Let's look at this last part, verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it, is, it will give you strength, and not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were encouraged and ate food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. Striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. The centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. So after two weeks of battling this storm. Think about it. I don't know if you've ever been in a rainstorm or a hurricane that's lasted longer than a day or a couple of hours. Man, think about two weeks being in it, out on the ocean, 
these sailors had no idea where they were at. They, they thought maybe they were in the north central part of the Mediterranean between Crete and Malta. And so Paul had already warned them, we're going to run this boat aground. And so they started taking different measurements for the water's depth and started letting down anchors to try to slow down the ship because this wind is blowing them closer and closer to the land. And I kind of think this is comical. Some of the, the sailors tried to sneak off the ship by leaving in the lifeboat. It said that they went down there under the pretense of letting out anchors, which I think is funny. Like, I'm just going to go down to the starboard bow of the poop deck and put out anchors. Like, it'll be okay. And Paul sees them and goes, hey, you're going to die if you do that. And they're like, oh, we're good. And they come back up and they cut off the lifeboat. And it looks like that they're all hunkering down and getting ready for a very, very bumpy landing. And as their last day at sea gets started, Paul urged them to take food because it's been two weeks since they'd eaten. I don't know about you, man, but if I've gone without food for like two hours, I'm starting to think, I wonder what's for dinner, right? If I've gone two days, that's a really long time. Two weeks without food, that's a really long time. But see, the reality is when you're in a situation and you're in a season of emotional, spiritual, and mental crisis, you're gonna focus on survival. You're not gonna focus on your basic physical needs like sleep, exercise, and nutrition. Why? Because you're focused on not dying. The reality is when we go through tough times, when we go through storms, sometimes those are the things we don't really think about. I remember a couple of years I was discipling a young man and he came to me and he just said, I just feel like all the time just groggy and not with it. And I try to read my Bible and I can't focus. I try to pray. I can't focus. I don't have any quality relationships. I feel so depressed. And I just said, well, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, how much sleep are you getting at night? He goes, well, that's not very spiritual. I don't have anything to do with God. I said, well, how much sleep are you getting at night? He goes, well, I, I play video games most every night and stay up till two or three. And then I got to get up for work. And, but I don't know what that has anything to do with God. I said, okay. Uh, what kind of food are you eating? What do you put in your body? He's like, well, I mean, Taco Bell, Doritos, Mountain Dew. But again, I mean, I don't know how that's really spiritual. I said, okay, do you like exercise? How about like walking? Ever tried that, right? And not really. Um, the thing is, man, you and I are limited creatures. We're, we're made from the dust. I said that earlier. Um, we need these things. We need these things. Sometimes the most spiritual thing that we can do is go for a walk or go for a run, eat a good, healthy, nutritious meal, and go to bed early. And those of us with children and diapers said yes and amen. I received that promise in Jesus' name, right? <laughs> man, man it, is, it does not make you any less spiritual to acknowledge the fact that you need rest, that you need good food, that you need exercise, that you need to take care of this thing that God's given you. And so Paul recognizes that with these guys. Of course, he's praying for them. Of course, he's there for them, speaking God's truth to them. But he also says, man, you need to eat something. So Paul prays and blesses the food. And all 276 passengers were encouraged and ate food themselves. People may ask, I wonder what the numerical significance is of 276. It means there was someone on the boat that liked to count. That's it. Um, so when they'd eaten enough... They, they took the food that they didn't need and they threw it off the boat and they got ready for the landing. Put yourself in their shoes. 276 people hunkering down. There's a storm. They're thinking this is going to get bad. And as this boat nears the land, it strikes a reef. And slowly this thing starts to come apart and the surf begins to pound over and over and over again on the stern of the boat and on the bow of the boat. And the soldiers start saying to themselves, we've got to kill the prisoners. They're going to swim off. They're going to escape. But the centurion Julius stops them, and true to God's promise, everyone reaches shore safely. Some people swam, 
Some people floated on pieces of wood, but still everyone was saved. Here's what I want you to see. God was faithful. God was true to his word. But listen, this deliverance wasn't exactly easy. I don't know if you've ever tried to swim in a hurricane, but I probably would not recommend that to you. I'm sure for these guys, there was still some amount of hardship and difficulty and pain involved in God's deliverance in their lives. See, a promise that Jesus gave you and Jesus gave me is that in this life, we will have trouble. That's an inevitability. However, Jesus says to his followers, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God gives us the hope we need in the midst of trouble to overcome. But God's deliverance in our lives sometimes may look a lot different than what we may think. Sometimes it may be an absolute wreck that we have to walk through, but still he's with us and his hand of protection is on us. If absolutely everything in your life disintegrates and falls apart, if Jesus is your foundation, if Jesus is where you're finding your hope, you're gonna be okay. In closing, I want to remind you of a story that you, you probably all heard. This is a parable of Jesus in Matthew 7. Jesus talks about two home builders. He says there was one guy, he built his house, and he built the foundation of his house on rock. And he built his house, and he said storms came. Not if the storms came, or the storms came because this guy was especially bad. No, man, storms come. He said the rain came, the wind came, the floods came, and this guy's house did not move. Why? His house was on a rock. There's another guy who built his house on sand. Foundation was built on sand, built the house. I'm sure it looks like a really nice house. His neighbors probably went by and said, wow, what a pretty house. That looks great. But when the rain came, the winds came, the floods came, this house collapsed and great was the fall of it. And the people are probably looking at Jesus and going, what does this have to do with anything? And Jesus says, the one who hears my words and does them will be like the man who built his house on the rock. He said, but the one who hears my words and does nothing with them will be like the one that builds his house on sand. Can we be honest? In the United States of America, there are a lot of us that hear a lot of Christian talk, a lot of God's word. We've got Christian radio and Christian TV and Christian bookstores and Christian amusement parks, right? I mean, we've got enough Christian stuff to go around. We're not dying for lack of not hearing God's word. We're dying because we're not applying God's word to our lives. There's a lot of us in the room this morning, if Jesus' parable was true, that are hearing God's word, but we're not putting it into practice. And Jesus says, when the storms come, not if, but when, it's going to collapse. And great will be the fall of it. Can I ask you this morning as we close, what is your foundation built on? Is it built on your money, success, your fame, recognition? Where is it that you're looking to to find value and meaning and purpose? When times get tough and you go through a season, what things do you think are going to fix your life? Some of us look at this and we go, man, I don't have to worry. I'm, I'm broke, so I'm not, you know. Well, the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. How many of you know you can be in love with money and not have any of it? When we think... Some of you go, yeah, amen. <laughs> when we think that money's going to be the solution to what's broken in our lives, we're proving that, man, we really are, 
having that thing out of line in our lives. That's a foundation that's not gonna support the weight of our lives. For some of us, it might be our spouses, our children, our family, our friends, good things, gifts from God, but not God himself. Because man, I, I hope you have a strong marriage, I hope you have beautiful children, I hope you have great friends, but can I tell you something? My beautiful wife and my two amazing children can be taken from me like that. If I find all my value and my significance and my meaning in them, it's not a foundation to build a life upon. Is it your lifestyle, comfort, convenience? When you go through a tough time, do you say to yourself, man, I just need to get out of here and go on a trip. If I go on a trip and then Instagram about it every five minutes, people will be super jelly of me and then my life will be fixed, right? So we think that this is going to fix us. We think this is the foundation to build a life on. And I want to remind you this morning of a truth from God's word, and it is that storms will come. And when they do come, the strength of your foundation will be revealed. This morning, if you're feeling helpless, if you're feeling like, I can't do anything to fix the situation I'm in, it's overwhelming, it's too big for me, know that God is the only one that can help you in your time of need, and he's still on his throne. Always has been, always will be, and nothing can knock him off of it now. Maybe it's worse than that in your life, maybe you're feeling hopeless. If you're feeling hopeless, know that just because you feel something in a moment doesn't mean it's true. We always, 10 times out of 10, have hope in Christ. Jesus had this reputation, if you read the Gospels, of ruining funerals. Shows up to three distinct funerals. There's a guy whose daughter died. There's a lady whose son died. There's his friend Lazarus that died. He shows up to all these funerals. Everybody's crying, and Jesus shows up and says, don't cry. Of course they're going, are you kidding me? Don't cry. It's a funeral. That's what you're supposed to do at a funeral. He says to the man whose daughter's dead, he says, she's not a, like a dead, she's asleep. He says, are you, what? He says to Lazarus, his sisters, go take the grave clothes off him. So we're not gonna take the grave clothes off him. He's been dead for four days. The King James says, he stinketh. <laughs> are you kidding me, Jesus? Jesus looks at them and says, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, there is no such thing as a hopeless situation when I'm involved. He's in the business of bringing life to dead places and bringing light to dark places. He ruined everybody's funeral, but he really ruined his own, did he not? If you're here today, not in a storm, and maybe your house and your life is being built on all those other things, you have confidence on the wrong things, I want to remind you that eventually in your life, storms will come, and if your foundation is built on the wrong thing, your life will give way. I don't want that for you, man. I want that for you. Know this, if your foundation is in Christ, know that when storms come, no matter their size, no matter their power, your foundation is secure and you're gonna be okay. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, for my brothers and my sisters, I don't, pretend to know their situations this morning. But I know, God, there's probably some storms represented, represented this morning. Lord, I know there's probably people going through things like divorce. 
cancer, financial hardships, or a, a family conflict or disagreement, or an estranged relative, or maybe even an estranged spouse or kids. And Lord, we know that in the midst of these, that they are bigger than us, and we can't do anything to save ourselves or fix ourselves. We thank you, God, that you are the one that are, is always in control and you're always on your throne. And so we cry out in this moment, Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. Save us. Remind us to put our hope and our trust and our foundation in you, the rock that will never be moved. For those of us who have built our house on things that are movable and things that are transient and things that are not eternal, God, forgive us and remind us Remind us to build our lives on things that matter and will never be moved, and that's you and your words. Guys, to the right and the left of the stage, there are men and women who would love to pray with you. They love Jesus and they love you. They're not perfect. But if there's any issue in your life right now where you need a brother and sister in Christ to stand with you and to lift that issue up to the Lord, would you come find one of these guys or gals after service and let them pray with you? That's why they're here. There's communion all around the room. Communion is a symbol and a representation of a God that gave his only son, whose body was beaten, whose blood was shed so that you could be made in right standing in relationship with him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've professed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to take that. The only thing I would ask is if there's known sin in your life and you don't want to give that sin up, man, don't take that. The Bible says when you do, you incur judgment on yourself, and I don't want that for you. So if there is sin in your life, would you just sit for a minute and let God work on you and lead you to that place of repentance? And we're just going to respond to whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do this morning. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Help us to plant our feet on the rock that will never be moved, and that's you, Jesus. In the mighty name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. God bless you guys.